Now, I'm in Acts chapter 1, as I have been the last several messages, working through this part of the book of Acts, talking about how the disciples were transformed from fearful individuals running from the authorities to people who were willing to die for their faith. We got kids' worship, and they have a wonderful time in kids' worship. So I know they're going to enjoy their worship. And I'm uh, talking about transformed by the Holy Spirit this morning. So that's what we're up to. By the way, we have a program tonight at 6 o'clock, which is our big screen and the decorations that you see. Our children's musical is going to be tonight at 6. I hope that you will come. Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days and talked to them about the kingdom of God. In verse 4 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts, it says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I love the picture of the disciples gathered around Jesus. It was while they were eating that he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. After he gave them the command, I see them tightening up, maybe gathered from the far corners of the table or the room, as they gather around Jesus and ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I love the picture of being gathered. It's a huddle. Drew Brees doesn't always have a huddle. Sometimes he goes huddle-free. But oftentimes he does. Peyton Manning does the same thing. Sometimes you have to huddle. And we huddle. Just like the disciples huddled around Jesus, we huddle too. I'm sure Peter's wondering about his individual path. Maybe he's pulling up close because he's got circumstances, situations in mind that he wants Jesus to address for him in particular. Maybe he's like that wide receiver that wants to know what the play is because his personal path is important to him. So we huddle up around Jesus, and part of what we're thinking is, Lord, what's my job? What's my assignment? What am I supposed to do? 
We ask that question when we sit in these pews. Sometimes we come in these doors because we're asking that question. Lord, what am I supposed to do? I hope that question's on your mind. I hope it's on your heart. I hope you've been asking that question like the wide receiver might ask. And I hope as we huddle up with Jesus today, as we look at His Word, as we hear Him, that you'll get some information about your personal path. It's important. It's part of the reason we huddle. But we also huddle up because we're a team. And we do things together. And even though everybody has their individual assignment, Drew Brees knows if we don't all get the assignment and all work together, this play's not going to happen like it is supposed to. So all the way through church history, this has been the gathering where the brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus come together, gather with Him, and receive not only their individual path, but a corporate sense of what God's calling us to do. Very important. We have five core competencies. We worship with our lives. The second one is we gather to go to the need. The third one is we teach to transform. The fourth is we disciple in motion. And the fifth is we embrace the future. We gather because we have a common task and purpose in our community. So we're going to coordinate our efforts as we gather. C.S. Lewis has that picture from World War II of the folks gathered around the radio listening for what's next, listening their commander, perhaps as they are in the field, gathered around the radio, listening to the person who's giving them instructions. And he says the church is a lot like that. The church gathers around the Word of God, gathers to hear the Word of God. And as they hear the Word of God, they get personal and individual instruction, but they also get instruction for the body. So I'm hoping that the body will hear this morning. One of the things that happens as the disciples pull close to Jesus is they want to know more about the strategy. Sometimes that happens in the huddle too. Even though there may be a play called in the huddle, if it's a two, minute, uh, two minutes till the end of the game or if this play is particularly important or they have to make this to win, Drew Brees is likely to talk to him. He's likely to give him a pep talk and talk about how everybody's got to do this. We've got to do our best. And so they're inspired as a team by the strategy that he's laying out for them with this particular play or the end game for the, for the football game. When the disciples gather around Jesus, they know he's going to be leaving. He's told them that. So they're gathered up tight and they're listening. What's the strategy here? What's about to happen? How are we going to approach this thing? The disciples have a question when they pull up tight with Jesus. And the question is, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The question reflects something that's been in the hearts and minds of the people of God for all these generations. We are full of anticipation. We embrace the future. We know God is good and history is headed toward God. We are people who see everything, all of human history, culminating in Jesus of Nazareth. We see fulfillment in the end. That's why the Greek word is telos for the end. 
It's a fulfillment, a maturity, a completion. That's what we expect in the end. We expect that all these things are going to be gathered up in God and find their fulfillment in the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So we embrace the future. We look forward with great expectation. It is not Christian to fear the future and expect destruction and dismay and terror and alarm and to be afraid, afraid about the future. That's not the future that God promised us. It is Christian to say the future belongs to God. And I'm embracing the future. We're going for a great future. And we know where we're headed. All things culminate in Christ. He completes everything. The disciples' question reflects their perpetual misunderstanding. These guys are hard-headed. They have a hard time getting it. It must be a little bit of a disappointment to Jesus to have Peter, James, John, and Andrew asking him this question, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He's been talking about the kingdom. He's been preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's been telling them about the kingdom and the vast expanse of the kingdom of God and the rule of God in the hearts of men. And now they ask this parochial question once again, a question about a geopolitical reality, Israel, with boundaries, a little place about the size of New Jersey. And they want to know about this little dot on the map of the world and say, is this one you're going to restore, this little dot, to the kingdom? They're thinking about the good old days, about the glory days, about that idealized time when David was king, Solomon was king, the boundaries were stretched out, and people respected Israel. And if only we could get back to that. Every generation and every people group have this same longing for some idealized past that they wish would be restored. That somehow God could rewind history and put us back in the Iron Age with David when, the, when Israel really ruled this part of the world. God's not going to rewind your history or human history. God's not in the business of rewinding history. And if you think that the purposes of God on this planet are confined by any nation's boundaries or any ethnic group, you got it wrong. Amen. The empire that God rules and the kingdom which he brings has an expanse that stretches this universe wide. And when God restores all things, not, what he restores will not be some geopolitical reality of the past. He's going to restore all things in Christ. We need to get this right, people of God. Our view of the kingdom is too small. Too small we have assumed that the kingdom is the same as my little place in my little world. It's true. We are patriots. We are citizens of particular nations, and we need to be loyal and patriotic to those nations. But not a single one of those nations, not Israel or Egypt or Iraq or Italy or England or Ireland or the United States is the summation of the kingdom of God. We are parts of families and ethnic groups 
as Peter, James, John, and Andrew were. They were Jews. They were Israelites. And sometimes we assume that our ethnic group or our tribe, our language group, our family or our people are the best in the world. And if everybody would just be like us and God would just replicate what we're doing around the world from our little spot on the globe, then the kingdom would come. Not so. Not so. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is getting smaller and smaller through communication and transportation and, and the ends of the earth coming to our backyard. And we have a great opportunity to proclaim the expanse of the kingdom of God that encompasses people from every tribe, nation, language. And it's a wonderful proclamation that we can make. And it is hopeful for every human heart on the planet. We denigrate each other to our own loss. We elevate our particular position to the loss of friends that we need. Will you, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They asked. They were asking about the end. Aren't you curious about the end? That's why we watch National Treasure, you know. We want to know about the treasure. And those movie makers are so good, they give us little rooms to look in, and they say, oh, the treasure's gone, you know. And then finally, when they break through with some key and the wall slides open, they walk into this cavernous dark space, and he puts the torch in the oil, and the fire travels down both sides, and it lights up this incredibly huge place under wherever it is, Washington, D.C., or New York. Where is it? One of those cities, all right? I was supposed to learn my geography while I was watching this thing. You know, and Nicolas Cage is standing there, and they found this unbelievable, magnificent treasure. We love those treasure hunts. We love these movies about the end. We love the finding of the secret. Now we know what's coming in the future. Now we know the answer. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Where's the key? Can we find the Ark of the Covenant? What is the Holy Grail? Let's go look. If we can just put it all together, if we can get the pieces right, if we can listen to the prophets, we can figure it out, and we'll know when the end is coming. It is a search that generation after generation have made. And people have made predictions through all these generations. The disciples rightly reflect this wonderful expectation about the future. That's part of our faith in Christ. We are looking for his visible, physical return to this planet. The same Jesus we're going to read in just a couple of weeks will come again as you have seen him go into heaven. That is part of our faith. Part of our faith is this. It is not for you to know. He could have said it different. They said, is, it, is this the time? Is this, is, this the, is this the secret? Is this the end? It is not for you to know. He could have said, 
we don't know or you don't know. He said it's not for you. There's some things in this passage that are for you. You are going to receive power. You will be my witnesses. There's something in this passage that is not for you. It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. You know, I'm older than I used to be. And I got so excited back when I was 25 and somebody said Jesus was coming in 1979. I said, hallelujah, I'm ready. Did you ever have that experience? Live long enough on the planet. You will hear the prophet say, you will see the big billboard in Ghana, West Africa. They're in the middle of a craw. Jesus is coming September 21, 2011. You will see it. You will hear a preacher on radio or television or read in a book that somebody has figured out when the end is coming. And I want you to remember this sermon, okay? Maybe your faith will not be shaken at all when the date passes and the second coming does not occur. Maybe the child you said is going to end. Or the weaker person you told, they got the date. Maybe they won't survive it. Maybe the people you're listening to who are setting dates don't really believe that date as much as you do. That's what I found out. The first thing I did as a researcher as a reporter for the Times-Picayune is, I decided to investigate the fella who said the world was going to end in 1979. It was 1979. And I chased down those leads with the permission of the editor. And you know what I found out? The guy wouldn't answer his phone. And he couldn't produce any of the documents he said that he had. The social security checks that required the sign on your hand or your forehead. He had none of that stuff. And I believed more passionately what he was preaching than he believed it. I'm telling you this because I know people who dropped out. When somebody they trusted set a date and they said that must be it. And they organized their life around it. And it so disappointed them that their faith was too weak to go on. We live in an apocalyptic age, men and women. And the movies about the end are more popular than they've ever been. And books about the end. And I'm telling you, it is not for you to know. It's not for you to know. There's some things that are for you to know, but this is one of them that is not for you to know. And if somebody says, I know, you just take that with a whole bucket of salt, all right? There's some healthy skepticism that needs to be in your heart about the modern-day prophets who say, we know. I don't know how many dates have been set over the last 40 years of my preaching ministry. But every one of them was wrong. And not only those, but the dates that go back all the way to the first generation of believers. 
You say, well, does that mean we're not supposed to anticipate and expect the Lord's return? No, we are to. We are to watch the horizon every day. We're to be on tiptoe. Put your nose to the glass. Watch the future. Jesus is coming, and it's going to be great. It's going to be great. But you are not to know the time or the season, Jesus said. The Father set that by his own authority. Here's about you. Here's what you need. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, people, I know you need the power. I've talked to people this day, this morning, who need the power. They need the power, the third-party power of God to help them overcome the difficulties and traps that they've fallen into, the things that have trip them up and tangle them up. They need the power. Now, I want to talk to you about the power of the Holy Spirit for a moment, okay? Because this is our need. This is our need, okay? We anticipate and we cooperate. I want you to remember the word cooperate when you think about the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can resist the Holy Spirit, but If you will cooperate with the Holy Spirit, with what God is doing in your life, the power he can unleash in you and through you and for you is amazing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Cooperate with God in the giving of his Holy Spirit and the power which he intends to have on your life. Cooperate with a devoted life. Love God every day. Pray to Him. Study your scriptures. Be a serious follower of Jesus. This devotion is important for you to get it when God starts moving around you. You'll be able to notice the activity of God easier if you're walking with Him every day. If you're not, that needs to get corrected. When's your prayer time? When do you get in the Word? Cooperate with what God's doing in your life, with a devoted life. Secondly, with a holy life. This is not just any spirit. This is the holy spirit we're talking about, all right? And the scripture says, you be holy because he is holy. Sometimes people are praying for great things to happen in their life. They want to know what what God wants them to do next. They're looking for instructions or uh, corrections about their direction and, and their future. And they themselves are participating in an activity or harboring an attitude that they know dishonors God. In other words, while they are praying for God to do something over here, they know they are disobeyed him in this spot right here. They know that's a rebellion in their life. They know it. And if you ask them, they'll tell you. Yeah, I I know that's not something God wants. They'll tell you. Now, if anything has pinged into your mind, as I've mentioned this, and all of a sudden, yep, That's what he's talking about. I don't want you to pass up that spot, okay? I know you'd rather God dealt with something else in your life. 
Wouldn't we all? I know you'd rather God went somewhere else. God, you want God to detour around this thing that rises up when you read the Word, when you pray, when you come into the house of worship, and you're looking at it and saying, that's out of His will, and I know it. And I'm telling you now, you've got to cooperate with God on what He's put His finger on right now. You've got to. That's the place, see? That's the place that clogs the power. That's the place that stymies your prayers. That's the place that takes you on a detour. That's the place that steals your joy. It is your disobedience against the Holy Spirit knowingly. And God won't go around it. He wants to deal with it. We got to let him. What else can we do? We've got to let him deal with that place. It's the Holy Spirit. He's called us to holiness. And he's given us a way to take care of the things in our life that are out of his will. It is confessing and forsaking. We get honest with God, maybe in this room this morning. Honest with God and say, God, I know this thing is out of your will. Forgive me for tolerating it in my life. Forgive me. Please remove it from my life. I'm leaving it today. You said, I did that before. Do it again. There are things that are called besetting sins. They come after you. It's almost like they have a mind of their own. They're chasing you down. The sin that so easily besets you. Don't get discouraged about it. Don't give up on it. Confess it to God. Forsake it again. Bring it to him. Get it right again. Leave it at the cross again. Do it again. Let God deal with it in your life. And as you confess, God cleanses you from that sin and all unrighteousness in your life. You are prepared for the work the Holy Spirit wants to do in you. That's cooperating with God. All right? We cooperate. We huddle. We anticipate the future. We incarnate the gospel. There are two things you can do. It's not for you to know, but you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Now, I urge you to remember the word is my, my witnesses. Witnesses of me. You saw me die on the cross. You heard the words I spoke before I died. You saw that empty tomb. You saw me in my resurrected body. You are witnesses, he's saying to his disciples. But he's also saying to all of us, you are witnesses too. You are witnesses of what Christ has done in your life, how he's changed your life. You are witnesses of the powerful life of God in you. You are my witnesses. Now, witnesses have words, and witnesses need words, and you're going to need words to witness to what Christ has done in your life in the world. Your words are important. Did you ever tell that to the three-year-old? Use your words, use your words. They want to communicate by nonverbal behavior what they want, but it's too confusing, and we want them to use their words. And Maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you, it's time to use your words, okay? We have both words and deeds in our witness. God wants us to use 
our words. If we don't use our words, look what happens. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works. And then what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, the people watching you cannot make the connection until you complete the witness. Yes, you want to live a life of good deeds. You want to do what is right. You want to be known for your honesty, integrity, hard work, discipline. You want to be known for your love for people, the joy that is in you. You want to be known for that. You want people to see that in you. But you've got to use your words to connect those good deeds to the Father in heaven. You've got to do them both. And the word martus, which is translated witness here, is big enough for both activities in your life. Use your words, and if necessary, die for the gospel. It's the word martyr. That's the word witness. And when an individual loved his Lord and held up his light and his witness, even though they executed him, they called him a witness. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you got to lay your life down. Generation after generation, and even in ours today, followers of Jesus physically lay their lives down for the sake of Christ. The boys we witnessed to in Accra, some of them have trusted Jesus. They lose a lot when they trust Jesus. They gain a lot, but they lose a lot. They lose their friends. They lose their jobs sometimes. Sometimes they lose their family, yes. That has happened to folks who have trusted Christ in our witness in this world. As they trusted Jesus, their family left them. They were no longer welcome in the family home. You say, well, that's a high price to pay. Jesus paid it all. The witness that you bear in the world is more powerful when you are suffering for the cause of Christ. It is more powerful when you are living it out even though it's costly to you, even though it's painful to you, even though you've lost something in the living for Christ. People watch a person who lives out their faith in the workplace, in the school, even to their own hurt, they stay true, and it is a powerful witness of the gospel. So I'm saying to you, we incarnate. God incarnates in Jesus of Nazareth. He becomes flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. And the good news of Jesus Christ becomes flesh in you as you speak and do the love of Christ. I want to testify now. God called me to be a witness too. And I want to tell you that I received Christ as Savior and Lord one day when I was young. And all the baggage that was hanging on me, the guilt and shame I felt, God washed it off my life. God changed me, and he made me a new creation. 
And for all these years now, I've been seeking to follow Jesus. And it is a joyful and wonderful way to live. He is not only the way, he is also the truth. I want to testify that the truth which is in Jesus, the truth of God incarnate in his Son, has stood me well through all these years of college and master's work and Ph.D. work in philosophy and sociology and all that stuff. And God brought me through with my feet firmly anchored in the person of Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. And I want to tell you, whatever discipline you're in, biology, chemistry, you're becoming a doctor or a lawyer, whatever you're doing, Jesus is the foundation that never moves. And never shakes. And you know why? Because he is the truth that transcends all other truth. And you can stand in this truth and enjoy the benefits of God's presence and power in your life and with confidence from this truth. Take your position as a person, a man or woman, in your discipline, in your chosen profession, in your community and in your world. And though the name of Jesus may stir up a hornet's nest when you mention it, though it may be costly to testify to his name and put words to your work, you will discover the faithfulness of God, his unfailing love, and a truth that stands tall and unwavering in every human discipline, whatever it might be. I want you to embrace this. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, thank you for all of the folks in this room who walk so many different paths in our community, so many different tasks, many different relationships, responsibilities, and opportunities. Lord, I pray that you would help us embrace your Son and our Savior, Jesus, completely, fully, in every aspect of our lives, our work. Lord, that you might help us in our relationships to honor you in everything. I pray for those who have discovered that you have put your finger upon a place in their life that must be changed, a sin that must be confessed, a behavior that must be forsaken. And God, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you will empower us right now to make our confession, to acknowledge that sin, and empower us in continuing hours and days to forsake that sin and be faithful unto you. Lord, we pray that you will help us cooperate with your Holy Spirit in the work he wants to do. God, make us powerful people in this city that so needs you, God. Help us to be powerful Christians, full of your Holy Spirit, ready to be the holy people you've called us to be, unashamed of the name of Jesus in our community. God, let it happen in every heart, every life, young and old, whoever we might be that you might be magnified and exalted as the one you really are, King of kings, Lord of lords. Amen.